Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 5th, 2020. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Garley to discuss incontinence, which is a very common but also treatable condition. Dr. Garley is a urogynecologist, which is a relatively new subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology. We discuss how common incontinence is and how the symptoms can range from mild to severe. Although it's not a dangerous condition, it is understandably very troubling for women, and many are hesitant to discuss it with their doctors. But, as Dr. Garley explains, since it's so common, women should feel comfortable being open about this with their doctor. We review how he evaluates women with incontinence and what treatments are available. Ultimately, nearly everyone can be treated and improve their quality of life. Alan is one of the national leaders in the field, yet is also really humble and easy to talk to. His patients love him. I'm sure you'll find him really interesting and helpful. On Monday, Stephanie Melka returns to talk about birth plans. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, we're here with Dr. Alan Garley, who's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai, a specialist in urogynecology, the chair of OBGYN at Mount Sinai South Nassau, and he sees patients in the same office as me. Alan, welcome to Health Woman. It's so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, Nady. <laughs> Very nice. And so we were also discussing beforehand the proper pronunciation of Garley, and you were going to say that your name is invented, and I said we need this on, on the podcast. This is true. This was a an Ellis Island special, mm -hmm. and my family had immigrated from Russia. Mm -hmm. And I guess they had someone from Ireland who was checking them in because there are some Garleys in Ireland. And since nobody knew the name before it was given to us, half the family says Garelli, the other half says Garley, and nobody cares. What was the name in Russian? Do you know? It was sort of take off on Garelic. Uh -huh. Didn't seem that hard to pronounce. We had that in our family, my mother's father's father. His name was Nathan Nathan. Because when he came on Ellis Island, they couldn't pronounce his last name. And so Nathan, Nathan. So the Nathan family was created in Ellis Island. Makes sense. That's how it happens. Very nice. So explain, who are you? What is a urogynecologist? What, what do you do? So a urogynecologist is basically somebody who figured out how to do operations that people used to do very badly. <laughs> so, all right. So you're one of the first people who's good at what they do. All well, right. <laughs> so the specialty came about because... Everybody had an idea on how to fix pelvic floor disorders, uh -huh. incontinence, prolapse. And so a group of people back, I guess, in the early 80s started an organization that specialized in pelvic reconstructive surgery at the time. Up until probably the mid 90s, we had about anywhere between two and eight people in the, in the country training at any time. Mm -hmm. Total. Not in one program. Right. Total. Right. And in fact, when I started to go into urogynecology, as it's popularly known, a lot of people that I was working with and training with had told me that this was not going to be a good idea, which wouldn't be my first bad idea, but that I wouldn't be able to make a living doing this because everybody can do this. Right. So as the specialty developed and became more advanced, we started to specialize in surgical procedures that were more difficult for people who were still delivering babies and passing out birth control pills 
and doing general obstetrics and gynecology. And by the early, I'd say by 2000 or so, the specialty had really come in its own. And then we had worked tirelessly for probably another 12 or 13 years until urogynecology became a recognized subspecialty of the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And our formal name is Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery. That's a lot. It is. So I just you, like to you say- You need an acronym. Like, well, I have MFM. It's simple. FPMRS. I don't like it. No. I just like Eurogyn. <laughs> yeah. Eurogyn is definitely easier for simple people like me to remember. How did you get into this? And start from the beginning. Like, Where are you from? How'd you get into medicine in the first place? And then we'll get all the way to where you are today. So I sort of took a few turns to get here. Mm-hmm. I started off in wanting, always wanting to be a doctor. And when I was in high school, I got into a seven-year medical program at University of Maryland. Ah, okay. And then after my first year, I hated it and decided I didn't want to be a doctor. Okay. And I decided I wanted to do something more in international work, not medicine. And I transferred to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. And then I had taken a leave to do an internship with the State Department with the Agency for International Development in Mali in West Africa. And when I was there, I got interested in some health issues like public health stuff and was developing oral rehydration for pediatric diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, very interesting work because you could save people who were going to die with very little investment. All you needed was some salt and some sugar and some water and things were good to go. Right. So then I came back and did my undergraduate work and then did another leave with Johns Hopkins School of Medicine on an Indian reservation, the Apache Indian Reservation in White River in Arizona. Really? I did not know that. I was there for seven months after spending almost eight months or nine months in West Africa. And so then I continued a lot of the work I was doing from Africa. I was doing it in Arizona with the Johns Hopkins Research Center on the Indian Reservation. And then I decided I did want to go to medical school. Uh-huh. But by then I had already dropped out of a seven-year program and I apparently lacked commitment and Got ended it. up going to Grenada to St. George's School of Medicine. I met some great people during my electives and my rotations in the States and was able to get a residency at the condominiums, formerly known as St. Vincent's, down in the village. Yeah, Yeah, sure. I went into OBGYN thinking I would be a general obstetrician, just deliver babies. But something happened in my first year of residency, which was I realized that I don't like waking up at four o'clock in the morning. Right. Tough to be an OB if that's that's on your docket. Wasn't a good experience. (laughs) All right. So I quickly figured out a way. As you're speaking to someone who was up at four in the morning today in in that exact capacity. We all make choices and I don't understand them, but uh, I worked with amazing nurses who were more than happy to do my deliveries for me in the middle of the night as long as I would show up at the last second. So Uh that worked out great. And my faculty there helped me develop my other interests, which were surgical. Yeah, I said we better develop his other interests because it's not going to be in uh, delivering babies. (laughs) God, we got to just got to do something. I realized that infertility was not good for me because the people cried a lot. I didn't like crying. Okay. And I didn't want to do cancer surgery because back then all the patients tended up to end up in the the intensive care units. And that was also not a good place for me. Okay. And MFM was out of the question because I don't like yeah. looking at television screens. Okay. So that really left the one specialty that people You know we do me. more than look at television I, apparently screens, right? So I we do podcasts. That's the other thing we do. We look at microphones. Well, no, they're adding yeah. an extra year onto your fellowship, I yeah. hear, to get everybody developed in this. Yeah, I, I can promise you that at four in the morning, I was not looking at a television screen. So, <laughs> so you decided 
gynecology, surgical, and then you got into the the area of what we call urogynecology. Yeah. So I got very lucky to get one of, one of the eight spots in the country mm-hmm. at the time, and I was really. Fortunate. And where was that? That was at the University of Connecticut. Okay. And after my first year of fellowship, my fellowship director decided to leave University of Connecticut and go to Einstein in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to go to the Bronx. And I had been offered a second year spot at a new program down in New Orleans at LSU Medical School. So I had transferred down to LSU. And the person who was the fellowship director there was one of the leading people in the world on vesicle vaginal fistula repairs, which was something I was very interested in. And my fellowship director at Connecticut was good friends with the Connecticut, with the guy in Louisiana. Yeah. And they agreed to this exchange. It's interesting, actually, because you talk about vesicovaginal fistula, the way that current residents in OBGYN and probably a lot of fellows in you know pelvic floor and your gynecology learn about vesicovaginal fistula is actually by traveling abroad. And that's because that's where the incidence is much higher, you know, places like various parts of Africa and whatnot. And that's where you started. It's true. Well, you're more interesting than I thought you were. Wow. If we have some more <laughs> drinks, Nadia, it'll become more interesting. No, you're no, you're interesting after drinking. I'm sober, you've never been as interesting. This is true. So this is all right. So that so that's where you are. And then from that point, how did you make your way to be such, you know, a big macher? You're the, you know, the, the chair of a department. You're a full professor. You're a big guy now. Well, because in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Okay. And if you learn how to do something that very few people can do, it's not so hard to sort of get advanced. Also, in my specialty, it's so young that it's not unusual for people like me to have served on the board of directors by the time I was 40, as opposed to your spe- your subspecialty where... People are, have been practicing this for 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's much harder to make a name for yourself when there are so many people ahead of you. Right. And that's the difference. Okay. So you got in early. That's good. So again, what kind of conditions would women have heard about or know about that you treat specifically? Well, the most common ones are things like pelvic organ prolapse, where the uterus or the vaginas coming out from the opening, they, they would say they have a bulge. Uh-huh. Also, incontinence, when you leak urine, if you cough, laugh, or sneeze. And then the things that <clears throat> are a little more technically difficult and different are things like problems related to transvaginal mesh, which were those kits that were implanted into people over the last 15 years, and the FDA has pulled those off the market, and a lot of people had complications with those. And then we also deal with complications from pelvic surgery, like fistulas that we spoke about, vesicovaginal fistulas, holes between the bladder and the vagina or holes between the rectum and the vagina. And we also deal with people who are born with congenital absence of the vagina. And then anything else that just requires surgery. Right. Now, some of this overlaps a little bit with urology. And colorectal surgery. Right. And colorectal surgery. And so how does that sort of get navigated, right? Because, you know, obviously you're treating women and then there's urologists who treat obviously men and women. So is is it something where it's like, there's something you do, there's something they do, or is it you guys do the same procedures and have different angles at it? Or is it like competition? Or how does that, how does that work? Well, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but in the New York metropolitan area, we have amazing relationships with all the pelvic surgeons, the urogynecologists and the fellowship trained urologists who do this. I would say we all function really well. We have high respect for each other. There's Probably 90% of what we do is similar, but there's 10% that we don't overlap with. And a lot of the urologists that are trained in pelvic surgery don't like to do hysterectomies. So that's a little bit of a rate limiting step for them. Yeah, because the urologist, not training in gynecology specifically, just makes people uneasy about 
the gynecologic aspect of this. That's why there are not that many pelvic surgeons who are really trained on the urology side. Probably 90% are trained on the gynecology side. Fascinating. And the colorectal surgeons don't like to fix pelvic floor disorders. They're more interested in things like tumors and cancers. So we don't really overlap a lot with colorectal unless there are fistulas where they have to do wide mobilizations right. and then they'll do the cases with us. Right. So you just operate together. Correct. Oh, that's interesting. That's a, obviously a wide uh, array of what you do, but I thought we could focus on urinary incontinence because it's, I think it's a common problem and it's, and the one hand, I don't want to say a simple problem because it's not, but it's sort of conceptually people understand it, like what it is. And it's something that's not, so to speak, dangerous, but it's something a lot of people have and need fixed. And so you're going to see a lot of people with that, I imagine. That's true. How would you explain to somebody what exactly incontinence is and why it happens to people or to women specifically? There are different ways of looking at it. One way of looking at it is sort of the physics of incontinence, like what what are the structural reasons? And then there are another way of looking at it is the functional reasons. So to make it simple, the best way to think about incontinence is that if you're just sitting and doing nothing and you're not leaking, that's because the pressure that's in your bladder is not greater than the pressure that your urethra has to keep the urine in the bladder. So the urethra is basically the door to the bladder. The only purpose of the bladder is the storage and elimination of urine. That's it. And what keeps the urine in the bladder is the fact that the urethra, the door, is tight. So if you put all this pressure on the other side of the door, eventually the door won't be able to hold the pressure and the door opens up and the liquid comes out. So that's a math problem. So if the pressure in the bladder is greater than the closure pressure of the urethra, you leak. Right. A simple way of putting it, if you're sitting here and not leaking, but you cough really hard and you leak, that's stress incontinence. Right. So coughing, laughing, sneezing, anything that puts a big stress on your bladder that causes the pressure to increase. Some people at some point, almost every person will leak. So that's stress incontinence. The, another type of incontinence is called urge incontinence. That's when we could just be sitting here and just doing nothing but watching television. And all of a sudden we have an urge to go and we can't hold it. We can't delay the ability for us to get to the bathroom. Either maybe we're on our way to the bathroom or we can't even get out of the chair fast enough. Our bladder basically has a spasm and causes leakage. That really doesn't have as much to do with whether or not your, your urethra, the, the muscle that holds the urine in the bladder, is strong or weak. It has more to do with what's going on in the bladder itself. Right. Then the third type of leakage of incontinence is something called overflow. Now, overflow is what happens in people that have neurological conditions where they don't have a good sensation of whether their bladder is full or not. And those people, the urine just reaches a certain capacity in the bladder and just starts leaking out of the urethra. Right. So there's three different types. And today, really, for the purpose of your listeners, the two important types that we're going to talk about are stress incontinence and urge incontinence. Because they're the most common? Because they're the most common. And overflow is just not that not common. And that would be that's something that has to be treated by people who really specialize in neurourology. Right. Right cuz the the bladder has like nerves that innervate it and you know which is what gives you sensation to go and it, Correct. When you say they're the most common, how how common is incontinence in women? So it's very difficult to get good epidemiological studies because of lack of reporting and and good follow-up. But the best estimates are that stress incontinence is probably the number one type of incontinence and that takes place in about 35 to 40% of all women mostly who have risk factors and the risk factors for 
incontinence, <clears throat> the number one risk factor is having had children vaginally. Right. Natural, you know, normal vaginal delivery. Right. The second most common is urge incontinence, and that would be in the realm of probably 25 to 35%. And then there's what's called mixed incontinence, which is the overlap of stress incontinence and urge incontinence in the same patient. And that probably can comprise maybe 50 or 60%. So among the female population, all of these incontinence types are extremely common. Right. So when you said originally that the stress incontinence is 35%, that's of women who have incontinence. Correct. But of all women, about what would you guess about how many of them will be dealing with incontinence at some point in their life? Probably a third. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very common True, because many women have children and that's a big risk factor. Well, another thing about it is, is that from an evolutionary perspective, if you look back over 150, 200 years ago, the average life expectancy for people was in their low 40s or upper 30s. Right. Only in the last 100 years have we expanded our life expectancy to over 70. And because of that, these conditions would not have occurred in younger patients. But as tissue becomes less estrogenic, meaning people hit menopause and they're not making estrogen, which helps the tissues stay healthy, then the incontinence increases. When people come to you, what is it about the incontinence? Is it just the, that it's, it upsets them like because it's socially, obviously, or is it that they're worried that there's something you know, wrong with them, so to speak? What is the reason people come to seek treatment for this typically? Like what's in their mind? I think almost the overwhelming percentage of patients come because it's affecting their quality of life. Right. It, it prevents them from engaging in activities that they want to do, whether it involves exercise or whether it involves being in social settings where they're afraid of wetting themselves. Right. It's usually some component of affecting lifestyle. Right. Because it's not typically, I mean, dangerous, obviously. It's just, it's quite annoying. Well, we always say the only time it's dangerous is if it causes a problem where you have to wake up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and you trip on something. And right. You, and this is actually, yeah. it, it sounds superficial, but it's actually a serious concern among older people. Right. That No, that does make a lot of sense. And then in terms of when you see these women, how do you, how do you evaluate them to figure out A, what's going on, um, you know, what the causes might be and, and what the possible treatments are? What kind of evaluation would someone undergo? Well, it's what we call a typical history and physical. And there are but actually only a few questions we need to ask to sort of get an idea of what's going on. Questions are, do you leak urine if you cough, laugh, or sneeze? If the answer is yes, that's almost always going to be stress incontinence. Do you ever feel like you have to run to the bathroom and you can't make it? That's almost always urge incontinence. You have to wake up at night to, to pee. That's called nocturia. And that's usually either associated with incontinence or it can be a pre-incontinent condition. You have to go to the bathroom frequently during the day. And by definition, frequently is seven or more times a day is frequently. And do you ever feel like you don't empty your bladder all the way? Now, if you have frequency in waking up at night, nocturia, those are things that usually will lead towards urge incontinence, but not always stress incontinence. But something interesting happens, which is some people, when they have stress incontinence, when they leak with coughing, laughing, and sneezing, it only occurs when their bladder is at a certain volume. So as a behavioral modification, what they do is they say, hmm, if I wait an hour and then I cough or sneeze or exercise, I'm going to leak. But if I go to the bathroom within 45 minutes of peeing, then I won't leak if I cough, laugh, or sneeze. So what happens is people have a behavioral modification where they start increasing their urinary frequency. And this causes them to have another type of overactive bladder. Right. So because the bladder sort of, quote unquote, learns that it's supposed to be smaller. 
correct. Right. I mean, the bladder, there's something called bladder training, like the bladder, the bladder can learn. Absolutely correct. That was always very interesting to learn about that. So aside from that, those questions that I just went through, those five or six questions, everything else almost is secondary except for the exam. And when we look at the pelvic exam, we're trying to see if things are where they're supposed to be in the right position or whether or not the person has some degree of what's called pelvic organ prolapse. Typically, those are things called like my bladder dropped or my uterus is dropping or I have a bulge when I have to have a bowel movement. I have to put my fingers to help. So if you have associated pelvic organ issues with these symptoms, that's what determines how we approach fixing these things. Right. And then what about in terms of the the severity? I would imagine someone who says, I only leak a few drops if I'm doing something very vigorous, but otherwise nothing versus someone like every time I cough, it's like, it's horrible. Is that related? Do you see that on the exam always, or is it sometimes unpredictable? Usually the exam correlates to what the patient is describing. But in our world, things are very binary. They're black and white. You're right. either positive or you're negative. Right. If you're positive, even if it's a few drops or if it's like a fire hydrant, it still comes down to quality of life issue. Right. And that helps us help you to determine what course of treatment that you want to pursue. You take the history, you do the exam, you have a pretty good sense of what is the problem they have and sort of anatomically, what else might you do like in terms of testing before you decide how to treat? So as part of the definitive method of diagnosis is to actually fill the bladder up with some water and have the patient cough and bear down. We do this both laying down and if they're negative, we have them stand up because if you're really going to have a surgical intervention for incontinence, the onus is really on the surgeon to prove that you're treating the right thing. Right. The worst thing you can do is do a surgical procedure on someone who would have benefited from just taking medication. Right. So this is called a systemetrics. In the office, we have a quick way of doing it. We put a small, very, very small catheter into the bladder, and we fill your bladder up with water while you're laying down. We ask you three questions. Tell us when you first feel the water going in, which could be described as coolness, wetness, or just any feeling of sensation. Then the second thing we ask is tell us when you feel like you would normally want to go to the bathroom. And then the third number we look for is you tell us when you're really starting to get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. We don't want to torture you or cause you pain. Just tell us when you want us to stop. Right. Those three numbers tell us basically whether your bladder is capable of holding normal volumes of urine. Then once it's at your maximum capacity, we pull out the catheter and we have you cough. And we could do it either in series of small coughs going up to bigger coughs, or you could just have the patient take one big cough and see what happens. Right. If they don't leak, then we have them stand up and we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Once we have a, a definitive diagnosis from that test, then all the treatment options, they fall into place. Got it. And so if someone does have stress incontinence, what are the treatment options for her? So first-line treatment options for stress incontinence are pelvic floor therapy, where you can work with a special physical therapist who's, they do special training in pelvic therapy, where they teach you to do biofeedback Mm -hmm. and what's called pelvic floor muscle training. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times patients will say, I listened to my doctor and I saw a video on how to do Kegel exercises. Right. Kegel. Kegel. Who's Kegel? Dr. Kegel. Dr. Kegel invented these, these exercises. And the problem with Kegel exercises is that most people when they try to do Kegels on their own without the help of a, of a physical therapist, are really just tightening their butt muscles. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the equivalent of throwing someone into a pool with a book and saying, read this and learn how to swim. Right. It's not really doable. So you would have to go to a pelvic floor therapist 
And even in the best of hands with pelvic floor therapy, you can expect probably a 75 to 80% improvement in your stress incontinence, but cure is usually not what right. ultimately happens. And then when you said biofeedback, explain what that means. So biofeedback involves a pressure probe that goes into the vagina and it helps you to confirm that you're tightening the right muscles around the urethra. Uh, so when they when they're doing the pelvic therapy and they say, okay, you know, try to tighten the muscles, it'll say you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. And so the people can, that's the feedback that they get. Correct. So, so you're saying that is a method of improving, but not typically curing. Correct. And that was, that was probably a, a good option as a first line when surgery was, um, was much more invasive than what we have today. Are those preventative? Cause a lot of times people recommend them in terms of preventing this from happening, the Kegel exercises, either like during pregnancy or after delivery or those types of things. So there have been studies looking at whether or not these type of things are preventative and the jury's out. There mm -hmm. was a study that was done in France a few years ago that was probably the most comprehensive study on the subject. And it showed that during the pregnancy, it probably did help. But then within three to four months after the baby was born, it really made no difference on the incidence. Interesting. So probably not so helpful as a preventative measure or not very helpful. But for some people, they need to try everything possible before they consider medicine or surgery. And yeah. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's no, there's no harm to None. it. None. No harm. And so if that does not work to the degree that she wants, what would be the next step? For stress incontinence, mm -hmm. the next step would be surgery. And we have different approaches, but the traditional approach that's the standard of care today is called the retropubic sling. And that was developed in Sweden in the like 1990s. And I traveled to Sweden and studied with the inventor of it. And I did the first TVT sling. That's mm -hmm. what it's called, a tension-free vaginal tape sling. Right. I did the first TVT sling in the United States in 1999. Wow. And this and this sling is basically meant to sit under the urethra to sort of hold it up to support it when someone coughs or sneezes or whatever. Exactly. The purpose of the sling is basically to act as a backboard mm -hmm. under the urethra so that if you cough, the urethra has something to compress against. And so we call it a TVT, tension free, because we don't want it to compress the urethra when we put it in because that would cause obstruction. Right. People wouldn't be able to pee. Right. So we lay it in very, very gently and loosely. And it has a 90% cure rate. 90% cure rate. Is that permanent cure or is that for X amount of time? So if you are in the 90% that's cured, 10 years later, 85% of that 90% will still be cured. Okay. So that's a very high likelihood of not needing something for 10 years afterwards. Correct. And the operation itself is not something where people typically stay in the hospital. No. They have it and go home, correct? Yes. It's a, it's a, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you know, normal situations. Right. Complication rates are extremely low. It's not in the same category as what people may have read about or heard about called transvaginal mesh. Right. Which caused a lot of problems for prolapse repair. And the FDA had pulled that off the market a few years ago. So this, if you go on the FDA website, this is described as pretty much the safest approach for the treatment of stress incontinence. And is there someone who would have stress incontinence where you would, you know, examine them, talk to them and say, this is not the right procedure for you. You need something more than this. And who, who would that be? So patients who need something more, you would still possibly do the same operation, but they would need more procedures done at the same time. Mm -hmm. So someone who has a vaginal prolapse can't have a sling by itself. Right. They have to have the vagina reconstructed so that it's in normal position, and then the sling can be done. 
Patients who are not candidates for slings are people who have had radiation to the pelvis. Those are, you have to be very careful about placing slings. By radiation, you mean like treatment for cancer. Correct. You don't treatment, mean like getting no. a CAT scan. Right? I mean okay. treatment yeah, yeah. for cancer. Right, right. A lot right. of radiation. Yes, All right. correct. And, and someone would obviously know that if they had that. The most <laughs> definitely, and you would know it too as the doctor. Yeah. There are almost no other contraindications for incontinence surgery. Right. And then it could be done on and pretty much women of, of all ages. Correct. Which is great. And these operations you're referring like so this one and all the other ones, how many of them nowadays would be done by someone like you, you know, versus a general OBGYN currently in twenty twenty? So it really is it's geographic and regional. In areas where there are fellowship trained pelvic surgeons, there are almost no general doctors who do these procedures anymore. But in more rural areas where there are not fellowship trained pelvic reconstructive surgeons, it wouldn't be uncommon for a general gynecologist who's done hundreds of these to be allowed to do them. And I'm sure those people do them safely. Yeah. I mean, it's most of it is about having the training and skill to do it. And so if they're, if they've been doing them and they're the one doing them, it's, that makes a lot of sense. Correct. Right now, how many fellowship training programs are there? Because you mentioned before there were eight total, because we never said how many there are now, because I know it's a lot. Now I think we're probably somewhere between 40 and 50 in the country. A year or total? That's total spots per year. Per year? Per yeah, year. That's a lot. Total spots per year. What about the woman who has what you think is urgent continence? So urgent continence, assuming that the person doesn't have any other associated pelvic organ prolapse, you can treat that really effectively again with pelvic floor therapy, and that can give you probably a 70 or 80% chance of significant improvement, or you go to medication as first-line therapy. Now, with pelvic floor therapy, the reason people don't like to do pelvic floor therapy is because it requires an investment in time. You have to go visit the therapist. It doesn't happen overnight. Medication, on the other hand, will work very rapidly and very quickly. And the medication just takes away that urge? It does. There are two classes of drugs. One class of drug is called anticholinergics. Mm -hmm. and that's drugs like people might be familiar with oxybutynin, which is ditropan, or tolteridine, which is detrol, or vesicare. And those drugs, they work really well. No drug works really with a higher efficacy than any other drug. The only difference is side effect profiles. And the side effects for anticholinergic class of drugs are dry mouth, dry eyes, and constipation. Mm -hmm. And lately, anticholinergics have gotten a lot of bad press because there have been some papers published where it shows that it increases the risk of Alzheimer's. Really? One of the drugs in that class has a less chance of crossing the blood-brain barrier, which is trospium, which is called Sanctora. And that's based on the, the structure of the of the drug. It's less likely to pass through the blood-brain barrier. But in as general class of drugs, those drugs can predispose you to Alzheimer's. Is that data strong? Because you would think that it would be so much confounding that women who take them tend to be older. And as you get older, you tend to, you're more likely to have Alzheimer's. And how did they really, were they able to properly like control for those? Because that seems like an error waiting to happen with that kind of conclusion. Well, I know you're putting on your statistician <laughs> hat right now, and I have to agree with you yeah. on almost everything you just said. But with the unknown risk, because the statistics are not strong enough one way or the other to refute it. Right. Luckily, we have an alternative. Right. And there's one alternative called Mirabegron, which uh -huh. is called Mirbetric. And this class of drugs works on a different receptor than the anticholinergics and does not have associated neurologic and cognitive risk. The biggest risk for that drug is it can cause a slight increase in blood pressure in some patients. Got it. So for women who have urgent continence, essentially, since the problem is not structural, 
there really wouldn't be a surgical treatment for it unless it's what you called mixed before, correct? Well, not entirely true. Oh, let's hear it. Because if you have failed pharmacologic therapy, meaning oral drugs, the next step is to give the patients either a Botox injection in the bladder, mm. which can be done in the office. It takes five minutes or something called sacral nerve root stimulation. Sacral nerve root stimulation is basically a pacemaker mm -hmm. that goes in the person's back. It's implanted. A little wire is implanted in the, one of the little holes in your sacral bone mm -hmm. on your back. It doesn't really hurt very much. It's, you put, it's put in while you're awake. It's done in the operating room. But there are also another therapy where you can do something called posterior tibial nerve root stimulation, PTNS. That's where we take an acupuncture needle and we put it in a little, through your skin into a little nerve behind your ankle. And it's hooked up to a little stimulator and you get stimulated once a week for half an hour. And that also helps. That, that interfaces with the same nerve that the sacral nerve root stimulator, which is the pacemaker, does. But the pacemaker is a permanent implant. We try to do the posterior tibial nerve root stimulator, the ankle one first. Right. Then we go to the Botox, and then we go to the implant with the pacemaker. A lot of people don't want to come to the office for the ankle one so that we can skip that and we go right to Botox. And that works for months? So Botox, if it works, can work up to a year. Wow. But if it doesn't work on the first injection, we wait 12 weeks and then we give a second injection. Wow. That's amazing. The, right. risk, the risk of Botox is 10, 10 to 15% of the patients can have short-term urinary retention. So you have to counsel them about that before they get the injections. Right. Sort of the opposite of Correct. what they had originally. Correct. How would someone find a urogynecologist? How do you see patients? Is it they come to you directly because you know they saw you online or a friend, or is it always referred from a gynecologist or internal medicine, geriatrician? How do people find you? So it's an interesting question because before the internet, mm -hmm. almost 99% of our referrals came from physicians. 1% came from patients who had already seen a urogynecologist and told their friends. Right. But as the internet has become more pervasive, probably 40 or 50% of patients now for every urogynecology practice find their doctors online. Right. Because they just, you know, they, they hear about you and that what you do. They Google the words. They, right. they know what they think they have. They Google it and they find us. Right. And I would imagine that for the majority of gynecologists, they're, they're happy you're around, right? Because they, they don't do these procedures, most of them. They are, because back in the old days, when medical economics was a lot different, people didn't want to give up cases and they wanted to do everything. Right. But as the world became more subspecialized and there was inherent risk to doing things that you didn't do on a daily basis, and people realized that it probably wasn't worth my while to Lock out an entire morning to do a 15-minute sling in the hospital when I could stay in my office and still see a lot more patients in general OBGYN. Those were things that pushed the specialty in, into getting the patients without having to have a competitive issue with other doctors. Right. So, I mean, your relationship with the area gynecologist is they're happy to send you patients. You're happy to see them and send them back. Correct. And the same goes for the urologists and the colorectal surgeons. The urologists the ones who don't do this as a specialty want to have nothing to do with these types of patients because it's just not something that they're interested in. The last thing we talk about in regards to incontinence, which I think is such an interesting aspect because it's so common. And the first is, do you find that a lot of women delay seeking treatment because they were either you know embarrassed by it or in denial or 
whatever it was? Or do you find that it's like in your practice, at least the people like the second they have an issue they're coming to? I'm just curious, like, what, what's it like out there? I think it's more of the former than the latter. Mm-hmm. I think more people are delaying coming to your gynecologist or seeking treatment from any physician because they're embarrassed. Right. The first thing people have to get over when they come to our office is that Every other person sitting in the waiting room has the same exact problem, right? right? And that they're not alone. And right. they, it just gives people such great relief to know that this is so common. And a lot of times people don't even know that other people had it until they mention it to people that they confide in. And then they're always told, oh, I had the same problem and I got it treated. This is such a common story where people will say, I've been just ashamed. I don't want to talk about it. And I finally mentioned it to one or two of my friends and I thought nobody would have ever heard of it. And I'm always surprised to hear that my friends have had this problem and they've had it treated. But that's that's the difference between me and somebody like an infertility doctor, because I happen to be very good friends with some infertility right. doctors. And so if we go to a party, the infertility doctor, 10 people can come up to them and thank them and kiss them and tell them how great they are and they're next to God for helping them have their children. Right. And I could see 10 people at the same party who I operated on for incontinence. <laughs> no, nope, never met them. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know you. <laughs> Don't know him. Never heard of him. It's so fascinating to me because I, you know, I take care of obviously pregnant women and so many of them have this problem, you know, either during pregnancy, after they deliver or as when they're done having children as they get older. I mean, it's, it's so common. True. And I, I would bet it's more common than the one out of three, but a lot of women, since they consider it potentially, or they convince themselves that it's not such a big issue because it only happens rarely or on small amounts or only if I do A, B, and C, but not if I do this. But then they stop doing A, B, and C and they sort of adjust their whole life because again, they're like, oh, you know, it's embarrassing. I can sort of manage without it, but they don't have to do that. Like if they have any symptoms, they can get evaluated. And again, you may, they may find that doing the pelvic floor therapy gets them to the point where they're fine, or they may want to try the operation again, if it's not not dangerous. It's not like you're not out of work a long time. No. Or isn't really a, just a, agreeing you're deciding for yourself, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get treated or I'm at least get evaluated. Sure. I mean, if we do the surgery on a Thursday, people are back to work by Monday. Yeah. That's how fast the recovery is. Yeah. And I think that that's really you know important. And also now that there are more of you <laughs> out there, it's not like it's you can't get an appointment. It's not like you can't get treated. You could see someone as an expert at this. And you know, I imagine that most of you and your colleagues it's not like you're just throwing surgery at everyone. It's the people need it. They need it. And if they don't, they don't. No one wants to operate on someone who doesn't need it because that's like, that's a, not a good situation because then you cause problems. No. In fact, one of the things that I think that really reassures patients is I always say to them, look, if you're having any doubt about whether this is the right way to go, I'll give you the names of people that I trust for second opinions. Right. Don't, don't take my word for it. But when the things are what they simple, what they are, and they're just so obvious, most patients, I would say over 95%. They don't are not interested in second opinions. They understand what the problem is and they understand how to fix it. Right. It's really probably just a decision to get evaluated is probably the biggest hurdle, so to speak. First getting step. people treated. The yeah. first step to therapy is just recognizing your problem and getting it looked at. That's it. Wow. That's amazing. One of the last topics I want to talk about is so women having babies. And people ask us this question sometimes. Well, if I have a cesarean instead of a vaginal delivery. Am I going to not have these problems as I get older? And it's hard for us to answer that question because the answer is, you know, yes, you'll be less likely that you'll have these problems. You have a C-section versus vaginal. But the question is, 
how much less likely, meaning it's, it's hard to know that for sure. You know, being pregnant itself is a risk factor, even without how you deliver. How, how do you go about that? I mean, you obviously have a different angle because you see everyone on the other end of it. So what do you tell people when they ask you this? I'm sure people ask you this all the time. All the time. It's a complex and, and multifaceted question and complex and multifaceted answer. That's why we're here. We're breaking it down. I'm here for you. Nikki. Yeah, we're breaking it down. So, so I can under if I can understand it, then I'm sure the listeners can. Well, I always figure if I can understand it, the listeners can. That's a fair point. Okay. So, <laughs> the bottom line is that I have taken care of nuns who have never been sexually active, have never had a child, and they have had prolapse and incontinence. There is a genetic component for sure to pelvic organ issues. We haven't really clearly defined what that genetic component is, but it is more prevalent among the Northern European white populations, like mm -hmm. the Irish, the Northern European Ashkenazi Jews, mm -hmm. very popular. And patients that don't have genetic predisposition, meaning they, in their family, there's no real history of hernias. And hernias are an associated finding that we have in patients with incontinence and prolapse. If your parents had abdominal umbilical inguinal hernias, you had these as a child, it puts you at a higher risk. Right. The question of whether or not you're going to avoid getting a, a condition by having a, a C-section, the answer is most likely you're going to mitigate your risk. You're going to decrease it. But does it go to zero? Most pelvic surgeons would say it does not go to zero. Right. You're probably going to lower it. We look at it a different way, which is what do you? What's your trade-off? Right, you're having surgery That's to right. maybe avoid surgery. That's right. So what what is your gain here? And right. I always tell people, if you have any desire to have more than two babies by C-section, yeah, I don't have to tell you this. Yeah. you could tell your listeners what the risks right. of repetitive C-sections are. Right, and it's it, it is interesting because I think a lot of people when they come at it, they say, okay, a lot of people have C-sections. And they seem to do okay. So I think I'd be okay having one. I really don't want to have incontinence. And okay, there's there's logic to that. But I think what people may not put in the equation is the incontinence that they would get from having a vaginal delivery is treatable by a less invasive operation. Correct. Right. So you're saying like, I'm going to do a more invasive operation with a harder recovery to avoid the possibility of having to do a less invasive operation, which obviously doesn't make sense. Because I think what people are maybe weighing is I'd rather a C-section than be incontinent the rest of my life. Like, that's okay. Like, I would agree with that, but you're not going to be incontinent the rest of your life if you get treated. I would say untreatable incontinence is very, 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 very rare. Right. It's just not something that we see. Right. I mean, eventually it'll work based on what you go through. Correct. I really appreciate you coming. This is really interesting and educational. It's nice to spend time with you also, learn about your- Thank you. All the things you've done in your life, which is cool. But I think it, it's really a good message for people that how common this is. Number one, that it's not something I always be embarrassed or shamed about. This is something that happened to your body, either from deliveries or from genetics or just from time. It's totally treatable and you should go get evaluated. There are people who do this for a living and they're good at it and they're happy to take care of you and they will find a way for it to improve or go away entirely. And I also tell you that when you come to see us, you know, we try to keep it light. We yeah. try to not, you know, stress you out and, you know, and your office especially i my assistant aretha who's amazing yeah and she you know makes patients feel comfortable and assures everybody that they're not alone yeah and so there's a big psychological component to this but we help you get through it now thanks for coming on we'll have you again thank you nady anytime thank you for listening to the healthful woman podcast to learn more about our podcast please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com 
That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.